0: Al Jazeera Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Nagin Oliyei, a senior producer with The Take, with another take, stories from our archives that are relevant again now. On Thursday, Israeli forces fired on Palestinians waiting for aid in Gaza City, where famine is imminent. It's being dubbed the Flower Massacre. Today, we're bringing you another story from Gaza City, This one from the very early days of the war. On October 13th, Israel issued its first evacuation order, demanding all Palestinians in Gaza's largest city move south. We wanted to know what that meant under international humanitarian law. For the Palestinians who fled, and the ones who couldn't leave. Here's that episode now. And please note, none of the dates or other references have been changed from October 18th, 2023, when it first aired. Shortly after 7 p.m. local time, Gaza City, laid out in the grass, in the dark, lies body after body after body, along with blankets, clothes, a little girl, he says, a baby. The scene is overwhelming, as you can hear from this man's voice. All he can do is pray. An Israeli airstrike hit Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City on Tuesday night, according to officials there. The Israeli military denies responsibility. But Gaza's health ministry puts the blame squarely on them, saying at least 500 people are dead. The Palestinian civil defense said the attack was unprecedented. The hospital is in the area where the Israeli military had ordered all Palestinian residents to leave. Health officials said that was impossible. The WHO had called it a death sentence. Thousands of civilians were seeking medical care at the hospital after more than a week of Israeli airstrikes decimated homes, businesses, and lives. People are already declaring the hospital attack a war crime. So as Israel's siege on Gaza continues, we ask the question, where is international law? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Just a day before the strike on the hospital, we spoke to Tagreed Al-Khudari, a journalist from Gaza. She grew up there. And her family is still there now.
2: My mother, two sisters, the husband and the kids, the grandchildren in one place in Gaza City.
1: But Tegreed lives with her two kids in Amsterdam. So when Israel's order for people to leave northern Gaza came out, she had to watch it all from afar.
2: We begged my mother to leave. She didn't want to leave at all. So she didn't want to listen to me. And and at the end of the day, they told her, we have to leave and we cannot leave you
1: behind. Tagrit says she feels powerless, and it's not only about her family, it's also about the country where she lives, the Netherlands.
2: I am next to, like, this country has the International Court of Justice. The Hague is the city of justice, and they are so proud. But then the position of the government was to stand with Israel no matter what, without mentioning any word when it comes to international law, nothing.
1: So Tagreed, I just want to ask you for those who have not been, which is the majority of people listening to this, what does Gaza mean to you? Gaza means
2: my identity. It's the place I was born, raised. I love it so much. I love the beach. For me, like I would even I used to sleep as a child and listen to the waves of the Mediterranean. It's the place that I I love, I I belong, no matter where I go.
1: Tagrit told us what it was like for her family as they tried to evacuate at the end of the day that Israel issued its order to leave. This is Israeli military spokesperson Jonathan Conricus. The Hamas terrorist organization waged a war against the state of Israel. And Gaza City is an area where military operations are taking place. This evacuation is for your own safety. You will be able to return to Gaza City only when another announcement permitting it is made. He went on to explain the Israeli military focus on targeting Gaza City. Hamas terrorists are hiding in Gaza City, inside tunnels, underneath houses, and inside buildings populated with innocent Gazan civilians. Civilians of Gaza City, evacuate south for your own safety and the safety of your families.
2: So they said you have to evacuate Gaza City. So the moment they left, they stood and it's like, but where to go? Where is safe to go? So they are asking me while I'm in Amsterdam, where is safe? And then they, they went, but in the way, To the south, two cars were hit by Israel, were bombed. Therefore, they couldn't continue. Luckily, my brother has a place in kind of at the edge of Gaza City. And they stayed there because they said where to go.
1: The order mandated that everyone north of Wadi Gaza, Gaza Valley, needed to move south.
2: And the thing is, you don't know what's the border now. They said after Gaza Valley, but they are a bit before, but they said, where are we going to go? They are not willing to be in a hospital or a school. They couldn't take that. And also they were so afraid. I told them it doesn't matter. I will find out a place for you. But they said there is bombing. They were so afraid to continue. So they stayed there. And now they said they are 28 people, other people like neighbors or something, distant relatives. They joined them and they welcomed them. So it's madness because it's, it's one place and there are 28 people in, in that place. But they feel it's better than being in a street or in a school or in a hospital.
1: Tagrid mentioned the day that her family was evacuating, that a convoy carrying people was hit on its route out of Gaza City. Investigations by Al Jazeera and others have shown it was the Israeli military who was responsible. Israel denies it. To understand the international law surrounding the evacuation order and the likely violations, we spoke to an expert who's worked with the International Criminal Court in the past.
0: My name is Julia Marini. I work as an international advocacy officer for Al-Mizan, which is a Palestinian organization based in Gaza.
1: Julia has been working with Al-Mizan Center for Human Rights for more than three years. Her entire team is based in Gaza, aside from her. We spoke to her on Tuesday morning, before the hospital bombing.
0: I haven't heard from some of them for 48 hours. I just hope, I mean, I know none of them is okay. Uh, We are at a point where instead of asking them, how are you? I'm just like, alive, question mark.
1: Julia says that the evacuation order was an impossible demand from the start. And she's not alone. The UN spokesman, Stefan Dudryk, said the United Nations considers it impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences.
0: So the order was firstly shared with the international organization living uh, based in, in Gaza. And then it was communicated to the overall population through leaflets that were dropped by Israeli planes, around 1.1 million civilians had to evacuate within 24 hours south of Wadi Gaza. Um, the pamphlet that was shared by the Israeli military also indicated two roads uh, that Palestinians could have taken to move down south. Our assessment of that legal order is that it was illegal. The time limit of the evacuation order, the number of civilians affected, the geographical scope of the order, and the circumstances surrounding the application of such an order did not make it either feasible or or effective. They asked, again, 1.1 million civilians to evacuate the entire north area of Gaza, which includes Gaza City, which is the biggest Palestinian city in all of Palestine. And they gave them 24 hours to move south, Uh, without any insurance of safety because Israeli airstrikes continued throughout the day and the following days. We have documentation that says that over 70 Palestinians were killed by an Israeli targeted attack as they were trying to move uh, south. So what we concluded is that because of these conditions, the order was not just illegal, but it may amount to the forcible transfer of the civilian population of
1: northern Gaza. A forcible transfer of the civilian population is a violation of international law, and it could be part of broader crimes against humanity. But the Israeli military has always presented it as an evacuation. So to understand the difference between the two, Julia says it's important to know there are very specific circumstances under which a population can be moved. The term evacuation
0: describes the act of moving populations in situation of conflict. And while military or medical evacuations are allowed, they can only be carried out under exceptional circumstances and under very strict and precise conditions. While the term forcible transfer describes the forced relocation of a civilian population, and if it's part of a systematic attack against a civilian population, it can amount to a crime against humanity punishable under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court.
1: One of the conditions for an evacuation of a population, Julia says, is the assurance of safe passage. And, she says...
0: Since Friday, Israel kept targeting the southern area of the Gaza Strip, killing hundreds of civilians, and the conditions in the south are not safe the living conditions are inhumane, with no water, no food, no electricity. So it's clear that despite the evacuation order, nowhere in Gaza it's safe. So the fact that Israel didn't provide any insurance or safe passage to the populations that was asked to evacuate further makes the order illegal under international
1: law. So where is the international community? That's After the break, get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. After Tuesday's airstrike killed hundreds at the hospital, Al Mizan, the human rights group where Julia works, posted on X that hospitals are entitled to special protection under international humanitarian law. Quote, this is a war crime, plain and simple, end quote. International humanitarian law also applies when it comes to people who remained behind in Gaza City, whether by choice or because they simply couldn't go any further, Julia says.
0: They remain protected by international humanitarian law they are still protected. And Israel bears a legal obligation not to attack them and to protect them from disproportionate attacks. So uh, this is very important to, to highlight. Whether they follow or not, the evacuation order doesn't take away their protection under international law. So Israel still cannot attack them or target them. And that applies to of course, civilians, but also, for instance, to civilian infrastructures, such as hospitals and all the wounded and sick that are being treated right now. So we know, for instance, that some hospitals in Gaza City and in North Gaza are refusing to evacuate because they are currently treating thousands of injuries and uh, an evacuation order, to say it in the word of the WHO, would amount to a death sentence for all of these patients.
1: But in reality, while Julia says they are protected under the law, she doubts whether these protections will be provided.
0: Israel's statements from high-level Israeli military and political officials and actions on the ground are leaning towards the fact that Israel is treating Gaza, the whole Gaza Strip, uh, as one big military objective. Again, it's illegal. It violates the number one rule of international humanitarian law, which is that civilians cannot be targeted and civilian objects are not legitimate targets.
1: This is Israeli President Isaac Herzog. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not, aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime, which took over Gaza in a coup d'état. But we're at war. We are at war.
0: What's going to happen unless the international community acts swiftly and asks Israel to stop its attacks on civilian and civilian infrastructure? The number of deaths will inevitably increase
1: and Gaza is going to be... It's going to be destroyed. But when it comes to whether or not Israel is breaking the law, there's a resounding silence, says Julia, even from the International Criminal Court. That's the body that has the power to make the call on whether this order or anything that's happened in Israel or Gaza from October 7th broke the law. Israel has never agreed to ICC jurisdiction, but Palestine did in 2015, for Palestinians the ICC is one of their only avenues for recognition under the law.
0: As we speak, there is an ongoing and open investigation at the International Criminal Court on the situation in Palestine. The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to investigate crimes being perpetrated under the territorial jurisdiction of the state of Palestine, meaning the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and East Jerusalem. So, everything that is happening inside gaza right now falls squarely within the territorial mandate of the international criminal court but the prosecutor of the international criminal court did not issue one statement regarding any of these events unfolding on the ground and over the past 10 days he didn't make any public statement through the icc office of the prosecutor but he simply gave interviews and at the end of the day the law
1: that I must look at represents minimum conduct, basic prohibitions that all humanity, all religions, Arab, Palestinian, Jew, Muslim, Christian, Gentile, Hindu, Buddhist, all communities, we should find common ground on this this essence of humanity. And the ICC's silence is echoing in the international community as well. Aid organizations are speaking up, and so is the U.N. Human Rights Agency.
2: There appears to have been no attempt by Israel to ensure this for the 1.1 million civilians ordered to move. We're concerned that this order, combined with the imposition of a complete siege on Gaza, may not be considered as lawful temporary evacuation and would therefore amount to a forcible transfer of civilians in breach of international law.
1: But many world leaders, Julia says have not spoken out. Over
0: the past 10 days, uh, we have witnessed the absolute double standards that the international community is using when addressing the, the issue of, of Palestine. Many UN agencies, including UN OCHA, the WHO, AMRA, have strongly criticized the evacuation order. Now, on one side, we have all these humanitarian agencies calling out Israel for the evacuation order. And on the other side, we have the international community. And here I'm mostly referring to Western states, including the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union as an institution, as well as its member state that have been completely silenced in front of this decision by Israel. And really, none of them is using the political leverage that they have to force Israel to comply with uh, international humanitarian law the EU just announced that they are going to triple their humanitarian aid into Gaza, right? But but there is no way that that aid can enter unless they urge Israel to allow the entrance of humanitarian convoys. Same goes for many, many European states. I think it was Ursula von der Leyen that one year ago said that cutting off water, electricity and eating to men, children and women, it's an act of terror and a war crime. And we should call it such. And that was referring to Russians' action in Ukraine.
1: This is Ursula von der Leyen, speaking as president of the European Commission last year.
0: The international order is very clear. These are war crimes. Targeted attacks on civilian infrastructure with a clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity, and heating. With the winter coming, these are acts of pure terror. And we have to call it as such. Again, as of now, she missed the opportunity to issue one single statement uh, calling on Israel to abide to international law or condemning Israel for its actions
1: in the Gaza Strip. And for Tahrir, this silence from the international community, including from the ICC, has not only been shocking for her, it's been painful to witness. I mean, you cannot be selective when it comes to implementation
2: of international law. You cannot be selective when it comes to what civilians to be killed. You cannot be selective when it comes to violation of human rights. It's, um, yeah, it's so unfair.
1: Despite her overwhelming sadness and her feeling of powerlessness, Tagrit says she still has been trying to take action in any way that she can. She's been asking people on social media to document where attacks are happening, including the time and the place to establish a record.
2: I'm trying now. I'm sorry. But what I'm trying, it's like, I feel powerless to do anything. So the the least thing, I just wanted people to document everything. I know there will be no international criminal court, and we all know it from previous attacks. And all these people I covered that, you know, like many families that I was a witness, you know, to their loss of lives. It doesn't matter anyway, but at least it's there. It's documented, and I think it's extremely important to keep doing it. I just wanna feel like I'm I'm, I'm doing something and and I, and I hope I can guide people. And I think it's extremely important to just keep it. And who knows, who knows if things will change because many people are pressuring this international court to count this as an evidence. So who knows by the time, it's wishful thinking, but something we can do, at least we can put it on the record that this happened at this phase of history.
1: And the worst part of that history unfolding, says Degreed, is not knowing who will still be alive with each new dawn. I want to ask you, what has it been like for you to be in the Netherlands and watch this unfold via screens and via phone calls with your family? Because I know the connection must be getting harder to keep. It's uh,
2: It's getting very hard. I'm used to call my mother and my family every day during normal days. And now, what I do every morning, I wake up super early and I just type, how are you? And I wait to see if I see someone saw my message. And then I say, oh, they are alive.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Faranisa Campana and Amy Walters, with David Enders, Miranda Lynn, Khaled Sultan, Sariad Khalili, Sonia Bagat, Ashish Malhotra, Zena Badr, Chloe Kaylee, Lee, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tim St. Clair mixed this episode. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.